This is the show where we let you inside the doors of a world-renowned personal training studio. Welcome to the Enterprise Fitness Podcast. I'm Marco Tobri, owner and founder, here to introduce this episode with master enterprise trainer, Reese Adams, and our guest today, Alexander Duan Antonio Cortez. Alexander lives and works by the mantra of being stronger. In 2008, after injuring himself, he needed a cane just to walk. But after reading Dave's Tate's Under the Bar, he made a choice that would never that he would never be weak again. Coming from a non-traditional athletic background with a degree in dance choreography, Alexander is an intense study of the physiology and science of how and why we train. He has trained hundreds of clients as a personal trainer since 2009. Alexander is a personal trainer located in Hollywood, California. In addition to training clients in person, he coaches online with John Meadows of Mountain Dog. John Meadows, we obviously had on the show, is one of our very early episodes. And he also writes for Elite Fitness Systems along with his own blog. Personally, I love this podcast. I found myself listening to it in the car, nodding along to pretty much everything that Alexander was saying, especially as it relates to the art and the science of coaching. So, I think you guys are going to get a, a lot out of this, a lot of things that um, you know I, I definitely agree upon and some really just you know, really good content and good reminders. Like I found myself on these, yeah, like why don't I, why don't I say that more? Why don't I do that more? It's, it's just really, really, really good stuff in this podcast. If you like the backing track uh, that you can hear uh, you know, underneath my, my lovely voice, uh, this is the official Enterprise Fitness Anthem. Uh, produced by my, my buddy Jamin, and uh, on the on the track that we're going to release, this is the instrumental. Obviously, we have Prodigal Son from Wu Tang Clan slash Sons of Man, who raps on it, and it's absolutely fantastic. I'm so happy with the track; it's our anthem. When you guys listen to it, you'll be like, "Oh God, that's that's pretty cool." You know, the guys at Enterprise thought I kind of lost my marbles a little bit getting a track produced, but then they heard it and they're like, "Yeah, like that's dope. I get it." So enough about the track. I hope you guys really enjoy this podcast and please leave a review at the end of it and let us know what you think on iTunes and Facebook. Share that stuff. Social media town, y'all. Without further ado, let's bring it on. Bye. Welcome and thank you for coming on the Enterprise Podcast today, Alexander. Thank you for having me. For our listeners, are you able to give us a bit of a background on how you first got involved in the fitness industry? Yes. Uh, so background-wise, I I started training in 2009 at a 24-hour fitness, which is a very popular chain in the U.S. I uh, I was actually I was a dance major in college at, in university. My actual degree is in performance choreography, and the I guess the short version of the story: I had some pretty pretty severe injuries uh, very early on in uh, my collegiate career, so to speak. And I was forced to rehab myself, and then the educational process of doing that, it got me very interested in, in training. And I always had a, I've always really enjoyed teaching just as sort of an art form unto itself. And you know, in personal training, seems sort of this to be a natural avenue to do that. So I transitioned into doing that, I believe, junior year of university. That's 2009, and then I have not stopped since. So How did you- that was a start. How did you injure yourself, Alex? And what did you do? 
Yeah, with a, so with the, the first injury, major injury I had was I was uh, late to class and pretty dehydrated. And I was, I was dancing, I was doing a piece of choreography that required uh, you to go into the splits, uh, front splits, which I'd done many times before. This was not, you know, like sort of a test flexibility for me per se. But uh, that morning I was, I was sort of, I was under, let's just say, under recovered, uh, underslept, uh, dehydrated. And I went into the splits and my left hamstring tendon on the leg get ruptured off the bone. <laughs> and that was a. That, that was very debilitating for, for you know, obvious reasons. Um, and then that took a while to heal just because I kept re-injuring it. Where, uh, I, I didn't realize the extent of the damage until literally like two or three years later. I thought it was a hamstring tear, which you know, looking back now was silly of me since there was never any bruising of any kind. It was actually the tendon. But that caused a lot of uh, this, this say movement issues. And then that kind of got better somewhat, but approximately a year later, I broke my left foot. And uh, after that happens, it was was a hamstring rupture, the tendon rupture, and then a broken foot on the left leg. And and after that, um, the left side did not work right, and it still doesn't to this day. I I had another injury I sustained. That was 2007, no, 2008, 2009. And then in 2013, I had a, an injury to the leg, to the femoral head of the femur. I, got, I gouged that piece of cartilage along with some bone loss. But, um, now, you know, that was later on. But, uh, yeah, the left leg just didn't work right after the two injuries. Um, so that, that took me out of the dream of the professional career. But it got me intensely into training and to serve the development of the body since I had to really do everything I could to keep myself functioning together. Yeah. How, how, how have you gone about... Um... I guess you're training now. Is there anything that you can't, can and can't do? You know, there really um, isn't. I just, I have to keep things um, fairly light. And I know that's, you know, it's one of those things where you, know, you can always get called a pussy for, you know, training light. But uh, I, you know, stuff that's going like, let's just say, anything below six on squats, you know, in terms of like six reps or less, it's going to like the 85% plus range. It, it will just hurt the next day, like in the bone. And that's something that, you know, like I, I really have done everything I can to mitigate and build up the musculature of the legs to, you know, a decent degree. But, uh, this, yeah, this, the, the higher intensity ranges are still just, just very aggravating. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, it's kind of funny since it, it forced me to essentially train sort of like an older lifter since, you know, because, you know, especially in the past, my joints were compromised on that side. I wasn't able to go heavy, you know, like a lot of young guys like to do. You know, I couldn't, you know, kill myself in the gyms because I, you know, I would hurt later on and it would really compromise recovery. So I was really forced to study the methodologies of older lifters or let's just say mature lifters because, you know, they, they train for progression but also longevity. Versus when you're young and in your 20s, you can sort of train for progression but also train to be stupid and get away with it to a degree. You know, I, from, from essentially an early age, I was... 18, 19, when I injured myself, I was not able to get away with anything at all. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I've got um, a herniated disc in my back, and uh, yeah, I I look at some people and I go, how do you get away with that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are the things that, you know, that's not to say that to discourage anybody from powerlifting or, you know, wanting to, you know, push the maximal intensity. But, you know, there's, there's a risk and there's a reward. You know, there's a cost and there's a benefit. Yeah, and for a lot of that stuff, unless, unless it's really, you know, let's just say programmed out and for an intent purpose, 
a lot of it just serves the ego. It doesn't really serve, the, you know, uh, as you say, gains at all. So, you know, I mean, for, for a lot of guys, you know, everyone, everyone knows that guy that's never gotten hurt until he gets hurt. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's true. Like, you know, when, you're, when, when, you're, when you're in your 20s, it's very easy to say, oh, like, you know, I've never been hurt. You know, my friend's never been hurt. You know, what have you. If you get into your 30s, you get into your 40s, you know, that, that's when it catches up to you. You know, or, or you're the 34-year-old that swears up and down that I've, you've never had an injury, and then you're 35, and then suddenly you, you, know, you tear a rotator cuff. Yeah, so, so some things do take, you know, some amount of time to show up, but they do end up showing up eventually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How did you come to start riding for Elite FTS? How did that come about? Yeah, Elite FTS, uh, so I was, that was in 2012. Um, I, I submitted a series of articles to them, which actually didn't have anything to do with training per se. They were, I guess you could call it almost like strength poetry. Um, they, were, they were more philosophical and, and tonality at the time. I was between jobs, and uh, I was actually at a career low point. I was, it was between jobs, and I wrote in these two articles about sort of trying to find resiliency uh, you know, at a, like a low point in your life. And then the articles were surprisingly popular. And there was one, two, and there was a, there was a third one actually that was about um, sort of like strong, garage strongman training. I, I was training out of my garage at the time. And they proved surprisingly popular, and I was asked to be a columnist with a site as a, essentially a personal training authority. So that was at the end of 2012, 2013, and then I, I haven't stopped writing from them since. I have and noticed that. Brought me Say what? I have noticed that. I looked on the Elite FTS page, and there's countless articles by you. They just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, yeah, that, that was what brought me into contact with John Meadows as well since – I ended up meeting him at one of the seminars in, back in 2013. So we made that connection. Yeah. With your background in dancing and ballet, uh, how did you find it to complement how you train your clients? Has, has it complemented? Oh, I'm, I'm massively so. Um, the, the thing with, with dance, like I said, as both an art form and as, a, a form, uh, as, it, as an art form and as a physical form of study, as a dancer, you're, you're very, very accustomed and entrained to observe movement on a very fine level. And when I say movement, um, I don't just mean you know athletic movement, the sensibility of competitive sport, but re- really movement as a concept that you can move your body, you can create form in any possible direction, you know, up, down, sideways, you know, internally, external rotation, you know, in, in a way that goes beyond uh, biomechanics and conventional physics of how I think most people that are athletic background conceptualize movement. Um, you know, there's far more to, there's far more to it than just sagittal, you know, frontal and, you know, transverse, you know, much, much more. So when I got into training and then especially relative to bodybuilding, you know, which really, you know, bodybuilding, obviously there's a huge emphasis on, you know, not just the aesthetic aspect, but, you know, muscle control and really targeting, you know, the area that you're trying to work. I, I found that it had this phenomenal carryover or transference, however you want to say it. Um, you know, it, it, I don't want to say it gave me this incredible edge, but it, it definitely, I think it, it set me apart in the way I instruct and teach since what I see when I watch someone exercise is I know much more comprehensive and detailed than I, than I think what a conventional trainer sees. And that's not to say that I'm, I'm better than anybody, but it's just, uh, because I've been watching bodies in motion for so long, 
you know, in so many different ways, you know, for the last, you know, over a decade. Um, you know, my, my observational skills are just a bit more developed in that sense. And, you know, and that's something that, especially for bodybuildings, is very, very crucial. Since, you know, for a lot of young guys, especially today, there's been a loss of appreciation for aesthetic, but also a loss of appreciation for, for muscle control in a way. Um, just because you have various popular figures in the sport that really emphasize, you know, how much they can push weight. And they're huge. They're big guys, you know, without question. But, uh, well, relative to whether that works for most people, it's not, usually not the case. You know, it's, you know, I mean, obviously, like Ronnie Coleman being a you know, preeminent example, you know, I mean, he's enormous, you know, 300 plus pounds. And, uh, you know, this freakishly strong. But, you know, that, that approach for the majority of people would just injure you. And even for him, it ended up injuring him ultimately in the end, unfortunately. Um, and if you look, if you compare, if you contrast that to the historical training of, let's just say guys like Arnold or Zane or Franco uh, or Bill Pearl going earlier than that, or even Lee Haney, they, they, they were phenomenally strong, but their strength was a byproduct of their focus upon musculature, not the other way around. You know, the, the, the paradigm of, you know, get strong, you know, get big is, is I don't want to say false, but it's very misleading. If, if you get muscular and you focus your training upon muscularity, you'll be strong as an outcome. You know, that, that will happen. You know, you know, how strong, I mean, that depends on your genetics, but, you know, there's no doubt that adding more mass begets your ability to move mass. But if you focus upon moving mass and not, you know, essentially your own, you're going to run into issues. Yeah. What I've noticed, I think I just went off on a big tangent. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's why we've got you on. So what I've, I've come to notice is um, they've done tests on the bent over barbell row. Yeah. Um, and basically what they found was when, mm-hmm. as the, the weight got progressively above what you were comfortable handling, you actually recruited your assisting muscles more than the, the actual target muscles. Um, so often people think, hey, yeah. I'm actually doing a 150 kilo barbell row. But let's be honest, they're actually using their forearms and biceps to a greater degree than the lats. So they're probably actually getting more activation out of their lats going lighter. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in that situation, I always, since, you know, I encounter this a lot with, with clients or people I've worked with. Um, well, they'll be insistent upon, you know, sort of like, you know, I mean, the braggadocio of like, you know, I can lift X amount of weight. And I'm like, if, if you can lift X amount of weight, you know, with supposedly good technique, how come you don't have the muscles to match it? You know, you, you see this a lot with like, a, like, like, let's say dumbbell rows. Let's say, you know, I can, let's say someone, you know, I can, I can row the 50, 60, 70 kilo. If, if you can truly row that, you should have extremely developed lats upper back, I would expect. But you see guys in the gym all the time, they're just heaving at the weight, and there, there's no real back contraction you know, taking place that's going to build muscle. They're just testing how much the weight they can move. Um, you know, and, and, and again, that's not to say that you should just train light, but if you did lighten the weight and develop the muscle control to actually move it, you know, a year from now, you probably would grow some muscle. You know, within, let's just say, your back. You know, same thing with the bent over barbell row. But, uh, you know, people, this, a lot of times, are just unwilling to accept that what they're doing is not working. So they will persist until, I guess, reality runs up against disillusionment. Yeah. <laughs> In most cases. <laughs> and a lot of people, I find, they, they tend to, they might contract a way to move it, but they don't contract it through. And then they sort of just catch it as they bring it back down. Have you noticed that as well? Yes, yes. That's something that um, you, you have to earn the right, the way I phrase it, to move a weight dynamically, you know, or to, or to cheat. You know, this is something I really, um, ex- this is something I really 
emphasize with my clients. You know, there's a right and a wrong way to cheat moving a weight. You know, and there's a right and a wrong way to, you know, accelerate the weight and to, you know, to catch it. And there's a wrong way to do that where you're just, you know, essentially just jerking the weight, as I say. Um, but, you know, the foundation for anyone that's really looking to get muscular, regardless of whether you want to be a competitive bodybuilder or not, it, it is that fine motor control uh, for being able to do a lap, you know, do, do a back movement, do a bicep exercise, a chest, you know, exercise, what, what have you, and, you know, truly innervate that target muscle and use that to initiate the movement. And if you can do that and develop the range of motion within that capacity, you will grow. You know, I, I've, you know, I, I've never had a client that I failed to put muscle on. But, you know, the predominant problem that I think I see for most of the Dre people is not that the movements they're doing are bad or that, that you know, they are hard gainer. You just can't, you know, gain any muscle mass. And, you know, it's just I have bad genetics. You, you don't have bad genetics. You, you have bad training. Your, your execution, your performance of what you're doing is, you know, is not to your development at all. You know, that, that is what's holding you back. Yeah, I do agree with that. Yeah, because... and that, again, it runs in people's... Yeah, good. Sorry, you keep going. I don't know, well, I was going to say, it, it, it's one of those things where it's hard to point out to people because you, you, could, you could be training hard. You know, and be, and be, like I said, people get their personality and their ego wrapped up to it. You, you, you can be training very hard, but it can be wildly ineffective at the same time. But then when you point out to people, they're insistent, well, I train really hard, so that has to work. Which, you know, then, of course, it becomes this kind of this, this funny fallacy. If, you know, if, it, if you train so hard and it had to work, then why hasn't it worked? <laughs> you couldn't have stated that any better. Mm-hmm. What type of clients do you deal with mostly, Alex? Um, I have something of a variety. Um, I'm not going to say, oh, I train every kind of client. I don't. But my predominant clients now are in person. I work with a lot of female population just because uh, that just happens to be the demographic of where I live, uh, you know, currently in the gym that uh, you know, I help run. Um, relentless performance. So for the women, um, the focus is pretty much just hypertrophy year-round, 24-7. We do have some women that are, let's just say, fat loss, but it's more so of a recomposition rather than dramatically needing to lose, you know, significant weight. And then online, um, I would say sort of this, again, these recreational lifters that are largely physique-minded, they want to build more muscle. I do occasionally have people that come to me that, uh, let's say, are semi-competitive, maybe with CrossFit, and they have some, you know, some muscle movement issues. Yeah, I, I know movement issues become like a real, has become a real popular thing now. But, uh, you know, predominantly, yeah, it's that. It's just, you know, it's physique people or, you know, or it's populations that just want to build muscle mass. And for the ones that occasionally have the, you know, the movement issues, it's very oftentimes it goes back to just how they're exercising. And they don't realize that muscularly they've trained themselves into, you know, a state of, you know, muscular imbalance. So that's not so hard to fix. It just becomes a standpoint of, you know, if you're doing a lot of squatting and you're not doing any, let's just say, lateral movement ever, you're probably going to have some, you know, let's just say exterior, interior, you know, hip pain, or you're going to have weak adductors, or you're, you know, your gluteus are being underdeveloped. You know, so it, for the majority of people, it's just, it's just perspective of just, you know, having them do what they haven't been doing and need to do, or just filling in the hole, so to speak, in their programming where, you know, maybe their, their program is addressing most things, but it's not addressing everything. 
And while there is no such thing as a perfect program, there is a such thing as programming continuity where you can keep yourself healthy and still continuously progress. I know for a lot of people, they tend to, I've noticed this a lot this in the last few years, people follow a program, they, they follow a program, the program creates issues, and they have to reprogram to fix the prior program. Yeah, I've seen that a lot with uh, the CrossFitters where they'll, you know, they'll get stronger doing, you know, I guess CrossFit programming. But then, you know, a few months later, they'll have to retrograde and go back and fix what the imbalanced programming, you know, caused prior. So, you know, th- this is stuff that with proper periodization, you can address from the outset and avoid. But, um, you know, I mean, periodization, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's a lost art, but uh, there's, there's more to it than just slotting in exercises and saying, do this. You know, you really, you really have to tailor it to the person. It's very case by case. And have an idea of where you want them in the end and, and obviously track back from there. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. You have to cre- create an outcome, you know, and, and that's something that I, I work in very long phases with people. You know, generally about six months is usually my, I'll tell people that's my preferred minimum training time. That's because you, you can do stuff in 12 weeks, but it's still, it's still only 12 weeks. Um, but, you know, you, you set an outcome of sorts that, you know, of qualities you'd like to develop or, you know, just let's say this muscles. Then you work backwards from there, and then it, it's, a, it's a feedback-driven process. That's the thing. You need to, you know, the, the thing that I always keep up with with all the clients. It's not just did they, they do the workout, but how is the training performance? Since you know modifications, you know, I'm not changing stuff every day, but I'm changing things usually around every two to three weeks. You know, and movements will be taken out, or rep ranges will be you know increased or decreased, or you know even the performance of exercises will be altered. You know, depending on how they're doing. Um, obviously, I'm not there in person, but you know that, that's something that you, you you can't just assign workouts or assign a program and expect that it's going to be optimal and what delivers. It may be good, you know, and for a newbie, you know, you can kind of do anything. But you know, for an intermediate lifter, you really have to develop that training instinct of knowing what works, you know, not only for your body, but you know what works in regards to, you know, three months, six months, one year from now, where you're going to be. And it just goes back to that longevity perspective. You, you you have to really think about you know, muscle building. It's it's a it's a marathon. You have to, you have to consider this long term, you know, and then and work through that paradigm. It can't just be a twelve week, you know, get big program. You know, it, in in reality, the accretion process for muscle. You're talking about adding at best a gram or two a week of, of actual dry tissue. You know, not not glycogen, not increased wire retention, uh, not inflammation, but adding truly muscle tissue, you're talking about grams of muscle. And, you know, that, I mean, that process, you know, in three weeks, you know, in three weeks or, th- or three months, you're not going to add that many grams. Six months, you, you, you add a few more. But, you know, three months, you know, the, the majority of changes are going to be more morphological in appearance versus true muscle gain. So, you know, regardless of whether you're enhanced or not, you know, if you're enhanced, maybe might be a slightly different story. But, uh, you know, these, these are all things that don't get accounted for for people. Or the, the people are just fallacious and they're thinking that stuff is going to go way faster than it's going to go. And, you know, it, it will not, you know. On average, how many phases would you stick with hypertrophy uh, as the main focus before changing to a different phase? I know you said, it, am I correct in saying that you change the phase to mm-hmm. every two to three weeks? Or is that just you might just change uh, one aspect of the program? Uh, uh, hypertrophy. Um, I'll be honestly. I'm, I'm gonna be controversial. You can train for hypertrophy year-round, but the manner in which you do so 
has to change. So, I mean, just to give a basic example, um, let's, so typically for more novice level clients, I'll actually start them out with strength endurance. And this is very classical linear periodization. Now, a strength endurance phase, let's just say the repetition ranges are 10 to 30. That will build muscle. You know, people have this idea that if you do something for high reps, it's just working endurance, not building muscle. Absolutely, that will build muscle. You know, the research bears out that muscle can be built with anything from 20% of loading up to, you know, 90%. Um, you know, some things are more effective than others. But, again, you know, when you look at studies, studies are looking at uh, controls and they're testing things in relative isolation within a short-term period of time. If I talk about building hypertrophy over a year, let's say for my female clients like I have right now that I've worked with, I started them off when I first started at this gym with a three-month essentially strength endurance phase. All reps were 10 to 30. Now, what this does is that this improves the muscle's ability to utilize oxygen. Oxygen is a rate-limiting factor for muscle growth, for, not even just for muscle growth, but for every metabolic process in the body. If your ability to use oxygen is poor, let's just say your stamina is poor, your endurance is poor, your ability to grow muscle will be compromised. You know, there's a reason why strength endurance is that first phase within the textbook examples of periodization. So I start someone off with, with a, a strength endurance phase, and this is even for intermediate people. All the reps are high, the workouts are very metabolically taxing, but I improve their ability to utilize oxygen. I have angiogenesis take place. I actually, so angiogenesis meaning higher reps will promote the growth of capillaries, you know, essentially blood vessels within the muscle. That improves blood flow. So I'm improving your ability to use oxygen. I'm improving blood flow to the muscle. I'm improving the endurance, let's just say type 1 fibers, if you want to say that. So I set you up where you have this very developed work capacity. You have improved blood flow. Your stamina for any other phase beyond that will be pretty excellent. Then I can transition into a more classical rep range, of, let's just say 6 to 15. Yeah, 6 to 15 that is generally agreed upon, let's just say, by the, the authorities and both the body of evidence, 615 is sort of the relative sweet spot zone for muscle building. So we go from a high rep phase down to, let's just say, more moderate to high repetition range. That's another three months, so now we're at six months. Following that, we've built up some degree of tissue. Now I can say, all right, let's maybe utilize triples or sets of five, something like that. Or you know, maybe even we can run a strength peaking program. We can improve your neurological coordination that way. Again, we're still going to be building some muscle mass through this phase incrementally, you know, by process of accretion. So now we've gone from endurance, we've gone through classical, you know, let's just say mass building. We're now into a strength phase, you know, let's just say six to nine months later, in which we're improving neurological, we're improving neurological coordination. We're improving your mental attitude towards handling heavier weight. You know, we're introducing a new novel stimulus. And then at the end of that nine months now, you're stronger than you've ever been. You're more muscular than you've ever been. We've kept you within a hypertrophy phase essentially the entire year. You know, and where do we go from there? You know, now we can move on to something that's, let's just say, power-based. You know, that, that, and again, this is, like, this is a long time frame. And this is a stage where I could say it may be a benefit to do stuff. It may be a benefit to actually do power cleans as muscle-building movements. Or maybe a benefit that you can do dynamic effort work. You know, there, there's such things as, say, like conjugate bodybuilding. You know, maybe you could. Maybe you could. But, again, this is very dependent upon a lot of factors. You know, or, or we could take that strength phase and just transition right back into a higher-up phase. You, know, you could repeat the cycle. You know, or based upon your personal experience with the training, 
I could get your feedback and I'll have your feedback as a coach, you know, my, you know, my observations, and we can design something that's a little more customized, let's say like a Fred Hatfield style workout, and we can utilize all the rep ranges, you know, from as low as three to as high as 20, you know, and we can move into like an integrated bodybuilding scheme. But that's, you know, that's done over a period of time. And throughout this whole thing, what, what is the predominant focus? Hypertrophy, 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 hypertrophy. But we're doing it upon a continuum. Very, very good. The listeners will love that one. In your opinion, Alex, uh, what are the main uh, important yeah. aspects for hypertrophy, in your opinion? If you had to give, say, let's, let's say three important aspects. Um, I, so I, the, the, the first predominant one, let, let's just assume that you are training. The, so the foundational need for hypertrophy, you have to recover, i.e. sleep. If sleep recovery is compromised, then whether the workouts are good or bad, the effects thereof, they're not going to happen at the same rate, or they're not going to happen at all. Um, you know, that's something that, it's, it's so basic, it's like, really, it's sleep? Yeah, yeah, sleep. You know, like, if, if you're not getting enough sleep, or if you're just under-recovered, what do you really expect to be occurring? You know, you're, you're not giving your body the time to actually build the muscle. You know, tra- training, whether the training is good training or bad training, training is fundamentally, it's a catabolic process. You're breaking down tissue. That's very, you know that's very basic. There's no such thing as a muscle building workout. There are muscle promoting workouts. So if you're not recovering enough, that's not going to happen. That'd be number one. You got to sleep. Yeah. Um, number two, I would say yeah. I, I I would actually say I would I would put training over calories. In fact, um, this will sound controversial, and I know it will, but I do believe you can actually build muscle in a calorie deficit, i.e. a small one with a caveat that you still have to have adequate protein intake. But I don't truly, truly know that you absolutely need to be in a surplus to build muscle. This because this based on results I've seen with uh, dietetics clients, one of the companies I work with. And I, I'll readily say that that's like, I'm, I'm throwing it out there and don't quote me as saying that I totally believe that you can build muscle in a hard deficit, but I think the body is capable of things beyond the current body of evidence um yeah but number t- number two would be training you know so if for hypertrophy you know training is going to be a determinant factor if the training is ineffective it's not going to happen if the training is effective enough it will you know and the majority of people that struggle with muscle growth it is a- assuming that they are sleeping enough and let's just say getting adequate protein intake their lack of musculature is because their training is ineffective then number number three would be let's just say you know caloric need um, so, you know, so long as protein intake is adequate enough and calories are roughly around maintenance, you can build muscle. It may not be as fast as for a surplus, but so long as the, you know, let's just say the substrate needs for amino acids and all that jazz are being, something will be built. You know, it's just going to, you know, and again, it can only be built so fast. But with that in place, you know, with sleep in place and training in place and necessarily, you know, nutri- nutrition in place, you will have growth. You know, the thing finds people is either lack of sleep or training is you know is lousy. Nutrition, I don't think honestly, is that hard to do. You, know, you, you you could reasonably eat nothing but peanut butter and chicken breast all day, and you'll gain weight. You know, and especially for men, just if you, if you're a man and you get fat, your body will add lean tissue. 
you know, something most people don't realize. A lot of guys don't necessarily realize realize that fully. But if you were to just gain 30 pounds right now, eating like absolute shit, you'd actually put on muscle. You know, not necessarily trying to. Your body will add muscle mass without being necessarily fully prompted, despite the sake if it has a big surplus. So <laughs> nutrition is not truly hard. You now it's 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 the recovery. And it's a stimulus that gets people. I agree with your opinion on nutrition being that uh, you don't necessarily have to be in a surplus to put on muscle. I've seen it with my clients time and time again as well, obviously getting ready for a competition. Yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those things where, again, I don't want to say, oh, you're going you're gonna to build a ton of muscle mass in a, you know, while you're losing body fat, but if, if you can maintain a positive nitrogen balance and maintain, let's just say, this is very bro science, if you, you can maintain a positive nitrogen balance and maintain a level of, you know, let's just say, circulating amino acids in the blood at all times, you can be in a deficit and your lean mass will increase a little bit. I, I mean, I've seen it with this, having people test their body composition you know, a few weeks into a dieting phase, and, I'm, I, like, it, and it's always surprising, but they'll, they'll actually go up a little bit in lean body mass. It's not super dramatic, and it's not like you're gaining 10 pounds while cutting, but it does happen. You know, the, the, the downside to that is this, the, the, ve- the vectors that you'd have to control for in a lab setting, it would never allow that to happen since, you know, by the nature of running a laboratory experiment or, let's say, like a double-blank trial, everything has to be controlled. And, um, you know, it just, it, it wouldn't be, it would, it, I mean, it's, it's, again, like I said, you, you can't create that in that setting, but on a N equals one anecdotal basis, you can. I think any coach that's been doing this long enough could probably attest to that. Alex, have you got a favorite training system you like to use for hypertrophy? Um, have you used John Meadows or do you, have you developed one of your own that you've had some good success with? Obviously, I know that you periodize everything, but um, any systems in particular? You know, I, I actually do not. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe in having a system in that way, and that's not to say that training is disorganized. But uh, it, it, it's because I always program in a case by case basis for everybody. There isn't any one thing that I sort of fall back to often enough. Um, you know, with Meadows, you know, so to say style training with the Mountain Duck style training, the, the, the main thing that I take from that is the uh, the sequencing is hugely important. Sequencing of movements. And intensity techniques. You know, those are two things that can really amplify the training effects of a program. You know, be, beyond that, though, um, you know, like you know, like I said, like I mentioned, Fred Hatfield's programming, where you know, he uses an integrated approach, of u- utilizing all the rep schemes. I've used that when appropriate. You know, or I've I've used that. You know, let's say paradigm when appropriate for certain clients. I've I've utilized total body training when appropriate for people. Um, you know, but the one thing that I do utilize quite often with my, let's just say, general population clients, is just a very simple alternating A-B scheme of upper body, lower body. Uh, that's not going to get you to, let's just say, competitive you know, physique athlete level, but for general population, it, it often surprises people when they, let's just say, like, you know, consult with me or talk to me, like, what do you do for a general pop? You know, if they want to build muscle, I literally alternate between lower body and upper body. <laughs> that, that's it. Um, and, and the workouts are just fairly high volume. You know, we're talking about around 30 to 40, let's say 30 to 40 plus working sets. Um, but that scheme, and that, you know, again, it goes down to sequencing. It allows you to address a lot of, you know, say common general population issues. You, the clients get a lot of stimulus. And if they're only training, let's say, three times a week, you know, they end up training their whole body, you know, or they end up training their upper and lower halves, like, you know, on alternating, you know, schedule. 
and I, I've had very excellent results with that for a very decent period of time. And I've, you know, I've tried other things where like, I try and keep a toll body all the time or, you know, I try and set up where like, you know, okay, we'll make it a little more specific where, you know, you have, let's say like, a, you know, a push day and a pull day, then like a hip dominant day and a knee, you know, let's say quad dominant day. And it, it's funny because I just always end up falling back to just the AB upper lower scheme. And then all that requires is that you keep essentially the, uh, this is say the compression and expansion movements or pressing or pulling or, you know, hip to knee movements relatively equal. But uh, that's a very flexible framework to work from. And the results that I've gotten, I mean, I could, I could post up photos and I have in the past with some, especially the women, they, they get very muscular, you know, from doing that. And, you know, that, that high volume approach, you know, general population, you think it might be overwhelm them. People will respond very well to that. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of sort of like the old school, let's say like, you know, toll body, Actually, like, you know, the sort of the whole body, you know, one by 20, you know, like Iron Man, Perry Raider workout from like the 1940s and 50s. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just referencing that. But, you know, the, the idea that you just hit every you hit everything or hit half the body very hard in a very complete fashion in regards to the, the joint angles and movement angles, that works. It, it works. And it's, it's something that at some point I'll probably maybe publicize it. Um, this has like a methodology that we use at Relentless. But uh, yeah, if, if I had to pick something like what I use the most, it's actually that. Just because that's what I use every day with the in-person clients. Uh, my, my online people just it really varies, so I, I couldn't really assign myself to a system. I'll, I'll just borrow from whatever I think is most you know, efficacious for the person. Yeah, with the thirty to forty sets, how long does it take for the client to get through it, roughly? Um, you know, it, it's about forty-five minutes to an hour. I. Wow. I don't time rest periods at all, but the, the way I sequence, um, so let's just, let's just say, for example, so you have an idea. Um, I, I use something I borrowed from Scott Stevenson. I'll use sort of a, a, a zigzag technique. It basically, just means it's, it's just a circuit. But, so, for example, it's an upper body day for a – what was today? Today was Wednesday. So it was an upper body day for a, a group of my female clients, and we were, you know, we're working upper body. We had just done – the, the pressing sequence. The pressing sequence, it was multidirectional. We hit a vertical press, a horizontal press, and a downward press. So we started off with a standing dumbbell push press for sets of six. We then transitioned to slightly elevated push-ups. Those were taken to this a little bit short of failure. And then we ended that with a bench dip. Yeah, and, that, and then these movements were tailored a little bit to each of the women. There's three in a group. But that was the pressing sequence. There was no rest in between any of those movements. Now, they're pressing, but they're non-competing in regards to them being different directions. So I'm not following up a bench press with a dumbbell press with a push-up. I'm essentially having a shoulder-dominant press followed by, let's just say, a pec-dominant press followed by a tricep-dominant press. That was repeated about – that was repeated actually four times. So, and those rep schemes were different. It was, it was six reps and then going to about 10 to 20 reps. And then the last movement being, you know, higher reps because it was less demanding. So that was done, you know, in a row, four times total. So that was actually 12 working sets, let's say. That was followed by the back sequence, which was a high stand, which was a high angle row, which then transitioned into a bent over row, which then transitioned into a face pull movement. Um, so again, we're, we're emphasizing the back, obviously, with these movements, and the same muscles are being worked. But the variance in angles changes the emphasis upon which muscles of the back specifically are being worked. 
So you have this big accumulation of fatigue, but you have these movements that are not necessarily bleeding over into each other where one is compromising the performance of the next. At the same time, the loading for all these things was fairly conservative. So that, that six-rep exercise at the beginning probably could have been done for eight or nine, but I kept it at six. By the time you get to the third and fourth set, the accumulation of fatigue, the accumulation of, of lactate, the accumulation of metabolites from the muscle, the, the pump event itself, now that's slowed down the rep performance, which is okay since you know, I account for it. Same thing for the back sequence. Um, you know, as they fatigue and we get this pump effect and we get you know, this you know, waste product buildup, you know, I'm driving the factors for hypertrophy, and I'm also giving them complete muscular development. I'm not just hitting their back horizontal. I'm not just hitting it vertical. I'm hitting it in all the possible angles that the joint can move from. So I'm not going to have any issues of, oh, I overworked this angle or that angle, or we did too much of, you know, this particular movement for the shoulder, it's being developed in, you know, essentially evenly. And, and you can tell when you look at the women, um, again, you look at my female clients, you know, it's not, it's not that they're big and huge, obviously, but they're, very, they're muscular, and they have very proportionate development all around, you know, within their upper and lower body. There is not anything where, there, there's not any musculature that is disproportionate. Um, and that just goes back to the program. You know, it was their upper body day, and everything is sequenced down that fashion. So that would be a... Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be an example of how you get through a lot of sets in a relatively concentrated period of time. Yeah. How long would you say the rest period is? I know you don't time them, but um, after a tricep, like the ones that you've explained. Yeah, after, after a tricep, I, I, I typically will give anywhere from what, like one to three minutes, actually. And I guess uh, give so, a So, long... you know, that, that tricep... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 let them, I always tell people I will let you rest however long you feel you need to rest. With women, my female clients' workouts, their volume is typically higher than men since they just, they just don't need to rest as long. Um, you know, I mean, obviously it's due to various physiological differences with a female, you know, with a female body. Women can power through, through stuff with you know, a degree of rapidity that men cannot. Um, let's say the typical male client's workout is, let's say, uh, let's just say 16 to, let's say, mid-20s, maybe 30 in the working set range. Now, all the women are routinely around the 30 set range almost without fail. Um, I'm always very surprised, too. Just, you know, they can make their they're, the female uh, physiology's propensity for aerobic adaptations, you know, for lower-intensity work happens incredibly fast. I mean, I've seen clients go from not being able to push a, a sled, you know, five times in a row without being winded to literally three or four weeks later, they're pushing it you know, for sets of 20-second sprints, and they're barely breaking in between. And, and they're okay. They're okay. Like, they're, they're getting their air, so to speak. So, and, I mean, that, that's just something that, again, it, it's relatively unique in that fashion. But, uh, yeah, rest periods, I, I don't push rest periods. I don't try to keep them short. I, can't, I let people, you know, go as they go. You know, what, what I find happens is if you sequence stuff in, you know, I guess the, you say the right way, there develops a continuity of flow to the workout where people mentally, you know, get into the zone and that that does a lot to buffer fatigue um you know obviously fatigue is real in the muscle it's not like you know you can you can only overcome the body so much but when you when you start when you hit that vein of feeling strong and you're you're within that melt state where the movements are you know you're going from one to the next and one to the next and it feels good yeah it might take people a few weeks to get within that mindset but once they're there they, they can always do more work than they you know previously could so, I mean, and that's something that any, I guess, you know, experienced bodybuilder has probably written about in the past, that, you know, you get, you get into the zone, you get into the flow state, and you can go, and you can do more work than if you were 
out of that state. Is there anything else that you've found to differ between males and females? In terms of your programming? Oh, Jesus, a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah, so um, with women, I will say that women broadly have a greater variance in joint structure in anthropometrics, I should say, than men. Um, you know, so with women, you, you really have to account for a, a few things that are very crucial. Yeah, women, because their joints are generally smaller, especially in the wrists and the elbows and the shoulders, like in the ankles, though there's going to be more wear and tear than if you were you know, compared to a man. So, you know, pressing for women, there's a reason why girls' wrists tend to hurt a lot. And it's just because they neglect the strength in those joints individually. And that's something that really needs to be addressed with programming. One thing that I do with all my female clients, I always do direct forearm and essentially like wrist work. I always do direct tricep work, you know, in isolation with high reps to develop the joint integrity. I'll always, uh, you also have to address hip, hips with women. Hip structure female to female can defer, can defer vastly. The assumption that all women should squat wide and squat low, completely, completely backwards. You know, with, with women and with this, with, with the variance in human hip structure anyway, you're looking at, you're looking at about 16 possibilities, so to speak, of how hips can, you know, how the femur can fit within the socket. You know, you have to take into account the femoral head, you know, how it fits the acetabulum, the pelvic depth. You know, you have to take into account the length of the, the length of the femur, the tibia. You have to take into account the torso. You have to, you have to take account into the, you have to take all these anthropometric measurements into account. And that's going to impact how they perform any given movement. And then you add in the joint structure on top of that. If you have a woman with very small joints who's very petitely built, but she's 5'9", and she's got really long femurs, but then a comparatively short lower leg with a short torso and relatively, let's say, a shallow-facing hip structure where external rotation is difficult, her leg workout is going to look very different from a girl that has you know, big hips and is built thicker. It's going to be very different. Um, and, and how she performs movements going to have to be customized to her. You can't just assign go squat because how she squats is not going to line up with the, you know, I guess ideal textbook model of what a squat should look like. You know, I, I mean, I've had female clients where they have very particular hip structures and they can only really box squat. Otherwise it turns into a good morning. Yeah, and then I've actually, I've had female clients where they have no external rotation because the bone runs into itself, but they're phenomenal high bar knees forward, literally squatters. Um, and that's the only way that they get balanced recruitment from the quads and the glutes and the hamstrings is, you know, almost doing a Chinese style. We're like, yeah, guess what? Her knees are going to shoot way over her toe. She's going to be sitting back, you know, almost on her heels, but her torso's upright. Everything's at a 45 degree equalized angle. You know, if I add everything up and that's how you squat, but I couldn't just tell her, put the bar on your back and drop it since, you know, if she tries to mimic what another woman does and she's going, you know, high and wide or, you know, say like low and wide. Perhaps you're going to get torn up. Yeah, so, I mean, w women are, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like more complicated than it is. This is all very learnable stuff. But a, a, lot, of assumptions, a, a lot of assumptions get made about training women that you just you train them like guys or all girls can lift heavy. And, that again, it's sort of a false comparison. You know, there, there's no such thing as male and female training. There's just resistance training. And then you appropriate it to the person in question. You know, so a woman that trains like a man, she's not training like a guy. She's probably just training with more load than she was prior. Uh, you know, that, that's usually what the thing is. And that's where the fallacy comes from. You have women that have never really lifted weights, and they associate lifting as a male activity, and they start lifting, and they assume they're, oh, I'm training like a guy. 
you're not training like a man. You're just lifting weights. You know, you know, do men train like men? No, men just lift. You know, so again, it just comes down to just lifting appropriately for yourself. And you do get guys with small wrists as well. Some guys. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. You you have guys that are let's just say like light structure, and you know you you can't load them up in the same fashion that you could have someone with heavier bone structure. I mean that that's a very obvious thing. Like look at someone's wrists, look at their elbows, look at their knees. If they've got skinny wrists and knees and elbows, they're never going to be a you're not going to be a powerlifter. You know, like very very unlikely. They're not going to be that guy that can push you know a heavy double or triple. They're probably going to they're, they're going to be the dude that needs a combination of isolation work with some compound movement work. Um, you know, that's why you can't assign like, you know, systemic or you can't assign systematic ratios. You know, I do have clients where the majority of what they do is more isolation based. Let's say it's like 60, 40 isolation compound. Then I, I have clients where it's like 80, 20 compound isolation. They can do two or three things with, you know, some isolatory work and that's what helps them. You know, that is what, that is what is most effective for them. So it's, it's just very dependent upon, you know, it's dependent upon structure and it's dependent upon, Genetic predisposition. Some very good points. What's your opinion on deloads, Alex? Do you use them? And if so, how often would you implement it? Uh, and when you go about implementing it, do you use lower intensity or reducing volume? Yeah, so deloads, um, they, they are necessary in regards to when. You know, there's different, you know, there's different, I guess you could say, uh, mentalities this if you want to always play it safe with training you could say deload every third or fourth or you know, fifth week um you know but you know the, the you, you could say that and that wouldn't necessarily be bad but again that's just a very journalistic example or it's a very journalistic suggestion you know the reality is that you know deloads it's just it's dependent upon the training of the it's dependent upon, it's dependent upon the, the intensity of the training if someone is training let's say seven days a week um, you may need to actually like you may need to deload every let's just say fourth week and have a week where you cut the volume down, or you take out let's say like the barbell movements and you just you know you just it's less stress and that that may act as your deload. Um, but you know, and then you may have cases where someone you know let's say they can go hard for a period of time and then they just kind of hit a wall and they crash just because you know not crash at their you know they you know they lose their gains but crash in the sense that you know this you know say inflammation and you know the workouts start to pile up. And taking a week off may be good for them, but uh, it's case by case specific. And, you know, and deloads, this, you know, the concept of deloading, it, it, it's a carryover from sort of the, the Soviet model of like year-round training, where they'd go, they push the athletes through intense periods, and they'd have to give them time to either supercompensate or, you know, say recuperate from the training phase they just went through. For a general population client, it's probably unnecessary to deload. You know, your deload would be more of a lifestyle thing of, you know what, I can't train this week because, you know, life happened and I guess I can't train this week, maybe should deload. You know, for, for a bodybuilder, a deload could be, which I've done very often with people, you're not allowed to touch the barbell. So you take out all the, bar, you take out all the barbell movements and everything you do is going to be dumbbells, you know, machines, cables, you know. And that for, you know, obviously, so you're not doing anything that's going to be real heavy. That can act as your deload. You know, or, or deload could this be, you know, you go in and train three times this week instead of, you know, five. Um, you know, I mean, there's a huge amount of variance to it. I mean, the, the, the classical deload, I guess you could say, to clarify, is predominantly used in strength programming where you've built up the intensity of your training over a period of time where you've 
let's just say they had gone from 70 to 75 to 80 to 85 to 90 to 95-ish or 92%, and then you deload and you supercompensate for a period of time, typically around 6 to 10 days, usually about, let's just say, a week to 10 days, and then you go and perform. You know, that would be the classical example of deload. For hypertrophy, it's not necessarily going to be a deload. It's just going to be a, you know, it's going to be a lowering or a decrease in training volume or intensity or just, you know, overall amount in some fashion or another. Do you have any specific clients that you do it for? Uh, yeah, no, I, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have a guy, I, I've, I've, I mean, all the time. I mean, I, I just, I just had a guy this week, um, he hit some numbers. So he's he's a, he's a powerlifter. He's going through a hypertrophy phase. He had a high week, and then he like he so he had he, we've been doing we since you know we're we're seeking muscle growth. So he hit he hit his numbers so to speak uh, last week, and you know that he like they're they're all time PRs, phenomenal. And then this week he was a little bit lower, and he's feeling kind of beat up. And you know his training had been going fairly progressively for about five weeks. So I had him deload. Um, and, you know, and he uses a fifth set methodology, which, you know, for powerlifting, uh, Swede Corey Burns, he's the progenitor of fifth set programming. I use that for the guys that are inclined, that really, really want to get stronger. I'll use that uh, programming method for them. So that's why I had him do it. He was at his fifth week, and you know, he was followed by a deload. Um, and that works very well. If someone is interested in that. But, yeah, I mean, that. so I just I took out, I told him, like, this week, he cut the workouts way down. You're gonna hit some singles at fifty percent, and you're gonna get out the gym. You know, you're just gonna go in and practice some the technical aspect, and we're not stressing the body just beyond giving a little bit of familiarity with what you're doing before. Awesome. I recently read a great statement by you with communication and mindset of the client being very important. You found most trainers to focus on the programming side mm. of it. Uh, or the biomechanics, uh, which helps to a degree, but the teaching aspect, the biology aspect, these tend to be neglected. And that your main point is that being a personal trainer, personal yeah. should come first, and then the trainer, and not the other way around. Yeah, yeah, that, that is something. I mean, I can expound that a lot. But the, the thing that happens for people, which is which is common, they they get into let's just say personal training, and you know they want to educate themselves, so they, they focus on the, upon the technical aspects, which is not bad, but fundamentally, if you view this as a job not where you're just teaching the person to exercise, but that they are, in fact, coming to you for leadership in a domain of knowledge that they do not possess, they're not asking you to work them out good. They're asking you to lead me through something, and you know this is a, this is a paid service. I need your service. I need your leadership in this endeavor. And I, I need your help. And that doesn't have a whole lot to do with the exercising in itself. That's someone that's personally appealing to you as another human being for your aid. You know, essentially, you can say it's, it's professional aid or professional help or professional leadership, what have you. But that is a relationship. You know, because you have to really take into account if the, if the person could do it, do this themselves, do it themselves, they already would have done so. You know, or you have people where maybe they're coming to you and they're hiring you because. I don't want to have to think about this. And you know, I, I always drive me crazy when trainers will sort of criticize that mindset. Like, you know, if you, if you really cared, you would think about it. Or, like, no, these, the, the reality is for a lot of people, they only have so much, let's just say, personal energy to manage their life. And if they can find someone that's an expert that will manage their, you know, help to manage their health for them in this aspect, and they can put their trust in you, 
absolutely that's worth investing in. You know, the, the trainers that say that, I always know either they've never hired a coach themselves or they're just lousy trainers. You know, it, it's, you know, for someone to tell you, that, hey, I'd like you to be the one that takes charge of this, that's very admirable. You know, that, that's telling me that this is someone that really values their time and they're coming to you and saying, I value my time so much that I'd like to put my, ex- my exercise and health in the hands of an expert and have it you know, be guided for me. Yeah. So, yes, this is very personal in regards to what this job is, in regards to what this profession is. You know, so, I mean, just basic things, you know, your ability to speak, you know, your ability to make eye contact, your, your body language when you speak to somebody, you know, the comfort that you create when you meet them, when you sit down with them, as you take them through the session, everybody's different. You know, you can't just assign it and say, oh, well, you know, there's visual and auditory and kinesthetic learning styles. Everyone learns every which way. They just have preferential way. They have preferential ways in which they learn different things. You know, and then going beyond that, you know, physical exercise is oftentimes very personal for people. You know, everyone was a child at one time. They went through life. They played. They ran. They moved. Or, or maybe they didn't so much. But doing this ha- can have a profound, you know, have a profound transformative uh, effect upon the mentality of a person. That's why I always talk about, you know, mentality creates physicality and physicality creates mentality. Uh, you know, they go back and forth. So, you know, all these things, not that you have to think about this when you go sit down with somebody, but th- this, there is a lot to this field. There is a very strong undercurrent of psychology. You know, there's a, obviously a, a very relatively easy foundation of exercise science. And then you're blending the two into the art of training a person. You know, it is a personal experience. You know, the reason why bad personal trainers can have lots of clients, they're probably really, really good at the personal part. You know, I wrote about this, you know, on the LFTS actually, you know, some weeks back, you know, of my, of my own experience as a trainer. And I was not a good trainer my first, you know, one, two, three years. I don't think I was, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I probably wasn't okay at training until about year, maybe around year three, four, where I felt like I wasn't god awful. But, you know, how did I survive those first one, one, two, three years? I was really personal with people. I, I like to talk. I like to get to know people. I have a, you know, I have a very strong affection for the people I work with. And that, that's essentially what carried my business. It wasn't because my training was top-notch. It was because the personal interaction was uh, really, you know, essentially just really good. And, you know, that's something that, you know, for trainers, if you're literally looking at, like, you know, how come my business is not where I want to be, Look at the relationships you built with people. You know, I mean, if, if your, your clients are they truly loyal and devoted, and they you know, essentially look out for you, or is it a case where you train a lot of people and it's just more of a volume approach, and you're always needing more clientele? Um, you know, obviously people will cancel times, or you know, you have, you have clients where they come and go, but you know, for the trainers that are successful in the long term, a very very large part of that is attributed to the fact attribute attributed to the fact that they develop really phenomenal relationships with the people they work with and they're constantly improving the quality and depth of those relationships. You know, and, you know, and, and in this business and any business that is a business relationships are everything, you know, that's where, that's where the, you know, it's not about who, you know, or it's not about, you know, the size of your network. It's about who, you know, yeah, that's where that kind of stuff comes from. You know, it's, it's no different than me telling you, you, you know, you, you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. What am I really telling you? You know, you, you you're, Life is the resultant outcome of the five people that you have the strongest relationships with. That's what I'm saying to you when I tell you that. You know? And for a trainer, you have the opportunity to be one of those five people for somebody. 
So if you take that for granted, you're doing both your client and yourself a very big disservice. One thing I have noticed is the clients that really trust you, they tend to get a lot better results than the ones that tend to question the whole process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, yeah, I'm glad you're saying this. It's, just, it's a very fundamental thing that just gets overlooked. Um, you know, it goes back to kind of like that statement of flow I made earlier. If, if, you know, if you want somebody to be bought in and to, you know, evaluate your service and, you know, believe it's, you know, worth money, I only need to ask one question. Does your client trust you? You know, and, and, and how do you build trust? You build trust through personal interaction. Trust is not built through exercise. It's built through you speaking to them and looking them in the eye and spending the time with them. Um, you know, if you, if you can build that quality of trust, you know, and they have that sort of inherent, you know, they have, let's say, the inherency of, you know, that of trust, you know, within you, in that relationship, you're always going to be, you know, worth the money, if nothing else. Um, if you can't build that or you, you, know, you struggle to build that with people, you know, you know and they are sort of on the fence about, not, not on the fence about your training, but they're on the fence about you. Uh, you're never going to, you're not going to hit the level of success that you want, you know, either with your business or with your clientele. You just won't. Couldn't agree more. How do you differentiate your service between training clients face-to-face and online, Alex? Um, So my my personality differs a bit between two. When I am training someone in person, where I mean that is really where you know that, that is the that is the foundation of training. I, I am very very intensely into the person. Um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of you know I'll, I'll, I'll brag about myself that way. But I, I had a, I had a trainer tell me once at a facility I used to work at where he he watched me train people over the course of the day. He's relatively new. He came up to me at the end of the day. You know he told me he's like you know I've been watching all day with your clients. He's like don't take this the wrong way, but you kind of look like you're in love with everybody when you train them. And asked me, like, you know, what do you mean? He's like, the way you look at them, it's just like you're all about them. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, that's how I am in person. So, I mean, aside from the standpoint of, yes, I'm there to teach you, I'm instructing on the exercise, you know, for that hour or so I'm with the person, there is nothing else going on in my mind. You know, and that, I mean, and that's, that's, I think that's a trainable quality. You know, focus is something that can be trained. And if you, if you want to master a craft, then while you are doing it, practicing it, your focus has to be utter and to, and, and to totality with, with what you're doing. Sorry so if that's training somebody, then that's training somebody. Is that something that you picked oh, no, up not all. while dancing? Um, I, you know, I, I, I could say, yeah, you could say that. I mean, dancing when you're performing, it's kind of the same thing. I guess you, you, for athletic competition as well, you know, when you're, when you're doing something that's you know, athletic or you're associated for performance – you have to fully inhabit that moment, um, moment to moment. You know, there is no room for a distraction of any kind. There is none. You know, that, that it will compromise the performance. It will compromise the expression of the art. And, you know, it, it, will, it will undermine, you know, what you're trying to essentially speak about or, or you, know, you know, slash dance about, um, you, know, within, you know, within the balance of the stage. So, I mean, you could say that. Uh, I, I know my personality. I can be very single-minded just in general. So, you know, maybe part of it this is part of it. You know, perhaps was environmental. Part of it was this, you know, uh, you know, nature. That is my nature. But yeah, definitely there is there is definitely transference from that. Um, you know, online it's a bit different. Obviously, since you're communicating through, you know, majority of the time through text, 
and you know through the written word. So with that, I just try to be as you know explanatory to make up a word as I possibly can. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to leave things to. I don't like to leave things nebulous with people or leave things vague, so I'll definitely always really try to over-communicate as much as I can with clients that way. This because I want them to understand my thought process behind it. So that, that does come out somewhat clinical at times where it can be a little bit dry since you're trying to explain something to somebody where, okay, here's how it works in my head. Let me make sense of it on paper, so to speak, so you get it, so you understand it. But uh, yeah, it, it is different forms. You know, written word is never going to be quite the same as in person. Um, you know, the, I guess you'd say the, the essence of how you train comes out with, you know, with 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 the online world and how you write. At least how I write. That's how that's how I feel. But um, if you you know if you want the full experience, obviously that can only be done in the flesh. Yeah. Do you use Skype at all with your clients that are online? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. Um, that's not something that you can, I can reasonably schedule every week, but pretty much everyone I've worked with, I've, I've always, I've always had at least you know the initial meeting like we, we've uh, we've skyped, you know, or we've had talks, you know, every so often we're like, hey, let's have a Skype meeting and talk face to face. And I mean, it's one of those things that increases trust. It gives them a lot, you know, assurance that you know that you want to talk to them, you know, if nothing else. And then then too, when, you know, watching someone, you know, through the screen, but you are watching somebody. I, I can see as I'm speaking to them how they're reacting and you know how they're sort of taking it in, and then that definitely gives me more insight too. Okay, if I if I know how you, you know, listen, you know, let's just say somewhat in person, then I can have a better idea of how to write for you when I you know correspond to you over the course of the week through email. So, you know, since you know people's actions are proportionate to their perception, you could say. So you know, so how you perceive. And hear and listen absolutely influences how you act and think and feel and perform. You know, and then that's something that you know to learn that about somebody, you do have to talk to them and at least you know watch them a bit, you know, eye to eye. Yeah. How have you found working with John Meadows and the Mountain Dog team? And what would you say is the most valuable lesson you've learned? Uh, working with John, that, that's been a great experience, uh, just because. Obviously, you, you get, you know, we've got, we got very excellent clientele. They're very, you know, let's just say single-minded to what they want. You know, people, they, either they want to get, you know, they want to get ripped, you can say, or they want to, they want to grow. Um, you know, in, in regards to the, the caliber of people that, you know, they're on the team, th- that's been the biggest thing, you know, that you've, that, that's, that's what probably has taught me the most um, on a, let's say, a professional level, personal professional level in regards to the work I do with the clients is that when you can have, you know, really excellent dialogues with, you know, people that are, you know, you could say masters of their crafts within different aspects, that will always, always improve the quality of what you are doing yourself. I mean, it, it just will. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, if you were to ask me, like, how do you get better as a trainer? First and foremost, you have to work with clients. Number two behind that, though, you have to work with people that are ahead of you. And, you know, there's no going around that. So, you know, if you guys on the team like Scott Seamson, you know, Scott Stevenson, Trevor Cashy, he's a very good friend of mine that I work with now. Uh, you guys in the past, like Frank Minx, that just, you know, this very, very intelligent, very practiced. And you can always, you know, interacting with them, they really help to expand, not necessarily your technical skill set, but they, they help to expand and attenuate your perspective of what you're doing. You know, and, and that's the biggest thing I've taken away with working uh, with John and the team. You know, it's, it's really it's really the perspective and the, the paradigm of approach. 
whether, you know, how, how you do, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. So evaluate how you're doing anything. Yeah. Um, and always, I guess, uh, look from an outcome perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, and the outcome perspective, I mean, there's two aspects to it. You, you, have, the, you, have, you have two differing mentalities, you know, in a way. You can almost say Eastern and Western. Um, you, you have the goal-based mentality where you, you, know, you look at the outcome and then you kind of work back from there. But, you know, in other cases, especially for general population, you have the process mentality where you're trying to, you're trying to create a sustainable system that is not necessarily working towards a hard goal, but it's working to continuously evolve and improve upon itself. So for, for the guy, for someone that's a competitive bodybuilder, yeah, definitely there's an outcome where I'm going to do a show. I want to put on, I need to put on X amount of muscle or I need to improve it, you know, these areas. Let's do that. That's very concrete. That's very easy to set up. For some of the term population, though, it can be a little more nebulous in regards to improving quality of life, improving I want to feel healthier. You know, these are more emotionally driven um, desires. So in that sense, you know, it's not necessary. It's not, nece- it's not necessary or prudent that you set up hard goals for people. Truly, it can rather be that you set up uh, sort of markers of time where you want changes in their mentality to happen. And that means, you know, helping them to facilitate changes in such a way with their mental state that they develop a system of of training, of being healthy, of how they're eating. And that carries them forward into their years. You know, that's something that I really work with, with uh, my older clients, let's say in their forties and beyond, you know, they, they don't have goals anymore. It's like, it's a goal to be X amount of weight or look this way. They might want those things, but in reality, it's reflective and representative of the fact that I have incorporated health and healthy practices into my life. And so long as I continue to do these things and progress them and learn, the system will take me forward to a better quality of life as I age. And I just need to keep doing it. You know? And that's something that, like, that, that, is, that is the essence of process. And uh, you know, for when you're young, that's hard to grasp, definitely. But as you get older, that becomes more that becomes much more prescient. And that's something that you end up realizing that you sort of need to do. At a certain point, as someone ages, you realize that you're never going to be – at a certain point, you realize as someone ages, or as they realize as they age, that they've passed the mark of being at their biggest and strongest and leanest and fastest and you know, what have you. And that becomes, okay, you know, I'm not going to be in my prime when I'm 45 because I'm 45 now and I already was 25. But you know, how do I live? How can I improve that? You know, and how does exercise, you know, in essence, fit into that? How does my diet fit into that? You know, am I truly valuing my time? You know, if I improve my health, will that increase the value of my time and increase the meaning of my life? Probably. Okay. So if we accept that, then what's the process for doing that? You know, it's a different mentality. Now that we're on the track, uh, the now that we're talking about achieving goals, what tools do you use to track body composition with your clients? Uh, for my composition, yeah, I, so the, the, the thing that I have tracked in the past, actually, now when I work with clientele, I generally will have them work with relentless dietetics um, just because I, it's, it's uh, essentially run by Nick Pierce and Trevor Cashy, um, and they're both brilliant minds, and you know, having... Since, since working with them myself now, 
and then you know having the cl- the clients that we have, um, which you know I cross refer over, uh, they get phenomenal results. But what is tracked actually is more so just this body weight <laughs> in the beginning, and it's establishing a baseline of what is your weight, what is your caloric intake and macros. Um, I know it sounds very simple, but this is how it goes, and then we we take it from there. You know, when you're talking about body composition for people, um, obviously you, you can take measurements, you can take caliper measurements, you can go ahead and do the bod pod test. But uh, I mean, relative to the majority of people, let's say need to lose body, let's say they need to lose body fat, they need to be cognizant of their weight. Otherwise, if you don't establish a baseline day to day to day to day, and you don't have the data, you don't have any true objective way of making changes. Um, you know, so it starts with just, you know, how much, how much is gravity pulling you down? Like quite literally, is it, you know, 138, 139, 140, 137, 139, 140, 141, 137. You know, if you're going to, if we're going to set some caloric parameters, some macro parameters, whatever for nutrition, we need to know what your baseline is for metabolic expenditure. That has to be done first. Otherwise, I, otherwise I'm just guessing. It might be a good guess, but still a guess. You, you need, you need data. Um, I know that can sound somewhat dry and impersonal, but what if the person doesn't want to track that or if they have issues about it? You know, if, if that's the case, then they do, but from a standpoint of you know, being, let's just say, a scientist while being an artist, y- yeah, I, I, you know, I, I can go on an instinct and paint a picture. I still need to know colors. I still need to know how the, the primary palette works for what complements each other and what doesn't. I, I'm still working within parameters of physics and structure that are rather incontrovertible. Um, you know, you, there, you know, the idea that you can intuitively teach somebody to eat, if you can do that on an individual level as a trainer, by all means, more power to you. Good. Like I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're able to do that. that. That's a very admirable skill. That is not a replicable system at all. You know, that's something where you have the personal, you have the personality and the personal experience where you can sit down with somebody and like, okay, we're going to make nutrition not scary for you, and we're going to make it. So it's all about, you know, you follow, like, so for, follow your heart, follow your intuition, and I'll teach you what you need to know. And that, that, that's good. That's very cool that that can be done. But, you know, if you're, like, in the position that, you know, I myself am in or, you know, Relentless Dyke Tech is in or um, executive programming, you know, that company that sort of I've used now to program with people, I, I'm working with larger populations of people. I, I have to have a system to both educate them and provide them with some framework and create outcomes over periods of time. And create something that gives me objective feedback that I can make decisions off, off of. You know, so for body composition, that starts with daily body weight. That being consistent. And then from there, and then you can talk about caloric take. And then you can make adjustments off of that. Um, you know, and that, that is undeniably, that, that's, it's, it's just being scientific. You know, there's another way really to describe that. You know, you know, pardon my very long-winded explanation. It's just being scientific and to the point with what you want to have happen, and then following those steps. And with day-to-day weigh-ins, you can track energy expenditure better as well. Which days are they expending more energy, and is there a consistency? Yeah, you can. And then the thing is with daily weigh-ins, I mean, it's something that I, I, the industry loves to bash now, this idea like people don't have to weigh themselves. The reality is if you have someone weigh themselves the same time every day in the morning, that can bring to light the fact that, oh, did you drink enough water yesterday? Nope, I only had a liter. Okay, do you, did you notice then that on Tuesday when you only drink a liter of water, that the next day on Wednesday and Thursday that your body weight had increased you know, a kilo or a kilo and a half? 
Oh, I did, but I thought I got fat that day. No, the reality is you probably had water retention. Well, why did that happen? Because you didn't drink enough water the day before. Oh, oh, wow. I didn't know it could fluctuate that much. Yeah, it can. You know, or you know, in the case, let's say for women that freak out about it, you know, they find out over the course of the month where their body weight goes up around their menstrual cycle, you know, and they're always upset. I'm like, you realize you have fluctuation hormones. There's increased water retention. You yourself are telling me you feel bloated. Is it truly shocking to you that your weight's up a kilo? No, I guess not. You know, so, okay, so the fact that I have these numbers in front of me, I can educate you a little bit, and now I can make you feel better about something that you previously were attaching a lot of emotion to, and now you have an explanation for it. Not that I, you know, fixed it for you in your head, but at least we have some logical thinking we can apply that, hey, you know, I know you're upset that you're, the scale's up a little bit, but, you know, rationally and logically and, you know, from speaking, speaking with us, you know that it's okay. It's not something that we're going to be reactive to. Um, you know, again, and that's a start. But how, how do you do that? You track body weight. You know, if I put you through a really hard workout and it's legs and it's Friday and, you know, we just did, you know, gazillion squats, whatever. And then on Saturday, it's like, oh, gee, my weight was up. You know, it's, it's fully possible that after a really hard training session, you're going to have some increased water retention. Cortisol will be elevated. You know, your body's going to want to hold on to fluid and food. And then, oh, look, on Sunday, your weight came back down. So that's probably why it was up that day. Again, this is all stuff that this, this is all. I mean, I'm just throwing out examples. So this is all stuff you can do if you have the data in front of you. Yeah, and it, it's so it's just so basic, and no one likes to do it now. Everyone likes sort of likes to do like this. I don't know what you'd call it, sort of this, you know, habit. You know, let's make healthy habits and talk about our feelings, and and that's fine. But it, it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. You know, if you want to change someone's subjective habits and their subjective view of themselves. Give them some objective stuff to work with, some objective material. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Some very good points, Alex. With your in-depth understanding of program design, for those wanting to take their skills to the next level, uh, where would, if you were to do it all over again, where would you recommend starting? Mm, okay. Um, okay, this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to undermine myself with this. For, so for program design, firstly, I would – I want to say don't listen to anything on the internet. I would much more intensely vet who I listen to and read about in regards to how long have they been practicing training. If it's less than a decade, they're probably going to get tossed in the pile of just don't bother. You know? um, so let's just say – so I want people with at least a decade plus of experience – then beyond that, I'd want to know that have they written any resources or no, not resources. Do they have any, let's just say, pieces of content or anything where I could say, okay, they produce results for people, or they have testimonials, or they have clients, you know, or, or even you know, not even that. Are they working with people in person? You know, I've seen it happen a lot where you've had coaches that are online now where they actually don't work with clients anymore, but they talk about how to train people. If you're not training anyone and you haven't in you know some years, I'm not going to trust your information. I'm, I'm just not. I'm not going to. You know, not unless you're you know, uh, let's just uh, yeah, unless you're Boris Shaiko and you're retired, but you train people for thirty years. You know, if you train people for four and then you went to the online business and it's been three years since you last trained somebody, I don't give a shit what you have to say anymore. You don't actually work with anybody. 
So, I mean, yeah, so if I could do it all over again, I, I would first look to the, I guess, veterans or people that are actively practicing and training in the industry. Because you know, yeah, it may not be the people that are online. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, let's just make it easier. Yeah, to name people, um, you know, former, uh, so Nick Timonello, he has a website. He's been a trainer now for 20 years. I know him personally. He still trains clients to this day. He has never stopped. He is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. Uh, Eric Helms, I want to say a 3D muscle journey. I know that he actually works, works with clients, very educated guy, very excellent guy to, um, you know, I guess like, you know, if you can learn his material, really, really excellent resource. Uh, you know, some people may hate the living hell out of him, you know, for fair reason at times, but I, I personally really love his material. Um, Lyle McDonald, really good resource, has an enormous breadth of material about training that's very practically written coming from somebody that trains people. I, I know he's trained people that's based off reading, you know, what, what he's written and, you know, he, he could testify to the fact that really good resource. Um, you know, beyond that, if you're going to go into like, you know, more subspecialties, you know, Aussie John Meadows has worked with God knows how many people, you know, his material in regards to, you know, bodybuilding training, hypertrophy, really excellent for powerlifting. Uh, I am extremely partial to Swede Corey Burns his fifth set methodology uh, is, is phenomenal for strength development. Um, he does do seminars actively, and he pretty much, you know, I, I know, and again, he's a personal friend of mine. Uh, some of these guys are just actual friends of mine, but he has a gym, and he trains his people every day, and he is very, very good at it. Um, he's a phenomenal coach, phenomenal teacher. Um, you know, so, yeah, so Eric Helms, Lon McDonald, Nick Tomello, uh, Sweet Corey Burns, uh yeah, this is smart. I mean, anything by Dave Tate. I mean, again, again, David Tate, he was a personal trainer for a fair number of years. He's still basically trains people this day. They come to the gym all the time. Um, you know, he's got, a, I mean, he's David Tate. He's got so much content out there. I, I don't even know where you get started. Just type in, type in David Tate training and you'll come up with a lot of stuff to read. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just look for those guys. I mean, look for the people that, I mean, look for the guys this comes down to, you know, find resources by individuals that, you know, have experience first and then, you know, they have experience first and then they have reflection and development, you know, second, you know, going off of that experience and, you know, learn from those, learn from those people. Uh, you know, with the one book that I would really recommend, it's on my website, you know, to any new trainer to give them an objective view of sort of the history of training in the industry, two books, actually. The first one being The Purposeful Primitive by Marty Gallagher. Uh, Marty is a very, very, Old school powerlifting coach going back about four decades. Personal Primitive is a phenomenal book. It present, presents an anthology of training and highlights stuff from the 1980s going forward into sort of the modern day and from both the physical side and the mental side and even, you know, sort of the spiritual side, so to speak. And then another book that is very excellent, it's a very dense read, but it's excellent Muscle, Smoke, and Mirrors by Randy Roach. Basically, the size of a Bible, but it talks about the history of physical culture from about 3000 BC to modern day. Um, you know, and the reason why I'm big on the historical aspect that you, you want everything that you do and learn to be within a context. And when you know the history about something past present, you can understand, better understand the future and better understand what you're doing within the moment. And it will give you a much more objective criteria of really what matters in regards to your personal development when you have that 
context. If you don't have that and everything is new to you and you assume everything's new just because that's what the industry says, you're always going to be changing your mind in all the wrong ways. Um, and that, that is why trends repeat and reoccur over and over again because people just don't know the history of anything. So they get caught up in the next big thing, which was really the next big thing five and 10 and 15 years ago. You know, it's just meant to reincarnate itself in a slightly different way. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, do you currently have anything in the pipeline that you're working on or planning on releasing soon? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I've got, <laughs> I, I've got about four different things I'm working on right now. Um, yeah, this because I, I had to have like various partnerships with people. Um, I, I likely will release, you know, through I did through Kindle through LFTS some eBooks later this year. Um, just on sort of like, you know, this might call like sort of like longevity protocols to training um, in regards to this different muscle groups. And, you know, that will be that will cover the practical aspects of training and sequencing in regards to workout structure. Um, you know, I, I do probably likely maybe a year from now, I'll release some content with Relentless that will be sort of a, a personal training programming handbook of sorts. Again, this is for practical application. It won't be necessarily like scientifically focused, but rather just within the, within the context of the gym and having someone in front of you, you know, how, how do you troubleshoot and game plan and strategize that? Uh, you know, if, if anyone does want to find me, so to speak, I have my personal website, Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez, uh, dot com. I post there pretty frequently and update that. And then, you know, for, um, for online training, the website would actually be executive programming. You know, just, just type that in one word, and that will take you to the portal, uh, so to speak. And then I also have, for, for bodybuilding-centric folk, uh, obviously mountaindog.com, you know, I'm there. And then for the, uh, you know, the, sort of the industry articles, you know, LeafTS as well. Um, I do have some stuff for Iron Man, Iron Man Magazine that comes out um, Monthly. Oh, um, you know, okay, okay, just to keep adding this stuff since I'm just talking <laughs> and blabbing. I do have a, a monthly column on Iron Man, actually, a Q&A. So if anyone ever wants to send me questions at all, uh, generally I will I, I pretty much answer everyone that comes in the, that contacts me. But you're always, I, you, know, you can always contact me either on Facebook. You know, again, full name, Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. You can contact me on my website um, or through email. Uh, Cortez.ajax.training at gmail.com. But, you know, for the, the, the Q&A, we just actually started that with Iron Man. But any, if anyone has any training-ish questions, feel free to send them my way, and uh, you might end, end up in the magazine, actually. After speaking so, to- I know that's like five things I just listed out. But- no, that's good. That's why we got you here, like I said before. After speaking to you recently, I noticed you're good at understanding biology. You mentioned if someone's put stomach acid on your face, it would burn right through. Uh, I found this really fascinating. Yes. Where did you learn this from? Um, I, you know, I actually, I didn't. So when I was in college, uh, my, I guess sort of my emphasis was, so it was dance choreography. The emphasis was dance medicine. And then when I was in high school, I actually took uh, college-level classes in biology um, you know, which I mean is, is common, I guess, you know, in a lot of countries you can take collegiate courses while you're still in a high school. But, uh, you know, biology, I always took an interest in not just the, the sort of the hard science of biology, but the philosophy of science. You know, what does it mean to be a scientist and actually study something? 
Um, so that always got me interested in biology. And then if you, if you, I guess if you really study the philosophy of biology, it gives you some basic background and just, you know, sort of metabolism. It gives you an understanding of, you know, why things adapt. It gives you a better understanding of, you know, what does it mean for something to be alive in response to stimulus? So, I mean, the standpoint of like, you know, the stomach acid thing, I mean, that's something that's very basic. I guess I learned in, you know, human physiology, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that a lot of people are very unaware of. That's why I always laugh when I see sort of the videos of, uh, you know, like liquid, you know, like liquid Coke or soda does to, you know, XYZ food or liquid, you know, the, you know look at, look at what the sweetener does and, you know, or look, look at what this you know, chemical does to, to, you know, to metal. And, you know, in reality, the body has a number of, you know, highly acidic compounds in it that if you extract them and were to concentrate them, you know, stomach acid being a perfect example, um, you know, something that is highly acidic, you know, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, when you throw up, like, why is my throat burned? Because it's burning off layers of tissue. It's an acid. That's why it hurts to vomit it up. Um, you know, if you took stomach acid and took it out of the stomach, like I said, you, you know, you tossed it in your eyes, you just called your eyes. You, 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 you have a chance you could go blind. Um, you know, I mean, you say, and, you know, your, your stomach acid, you know, it, it can digest a lot of things. It can go like, I mean, it can quite literally, uh, you know, degrade bone almost a little bit. Not that you can digest, digest bone, but, uh, yeah, if you, if you dropped a bone, if you dropped a bone, so to speak, let's say like a soup bone and human stomach acid and sat left there for a week and it was biologically active, that thing would melt. It would be reduced to nothing a week later. You know, like it, it's, a, it's a strong acid. <laughs> it has to be. So yeah, I mean, regardless of where I learned that from, um, yeah, I, I just have I've always studied the sciences from a, a young age. Uh, yeah, I studied the sciences and I studied arts, and I always looked for the you know the merger of the two. So, is there any courses or reading material you'd recommend about biology? Um, you know, okay, there there is there is a book. Um, yeah, I mean, if someone really wants to get educated about biology, get get on Coursera. You know, it's a free uh, – Coursera is a website that actually has actual college courses from various universities worldwide that are, are free to take, and you can get a certificate for completing them, and they're actually very very high quality oftentimes. You can get on Coursera. You could take a biology level 50 class or a human biology class, and that would be a way to educate yourself. There is a book um, that I do recommend at times, and it's called it, – it's a bit of a heavy read. I'll say this. So if you're someone where you're like, you don't really like science, don't, I, I'm not going to say it, go buy it. Because you'll be like, what the hell am I reading? It's called Design in Nature. It covers the constructal law, which is actually a universal law and with physics and energy that governs the structure of biology and the structure of technology in a way and the structure of how systems organize themselves in nature. Um, and essentially, the constructal law is almost ground. It's ground in thermodynamics, but it says if you have if you have energy and you direct it with any degree of force into anything, or if the fact that it exists, it will always attempt to equalize itself and split into two. So, to give an example of that, since I know I probably confused the living hell out of people, um, if I pour water down like a like a, a window pane, the water will divert into streams. And all that means is the water encounters a slight obstacle. So rather than, you know, make an inefficient pattern, the water attempted to split around it. 
Um, you can see this in rivers. You can see this in blood vessels. If I take all the blood vessels out of the body, it looks like a river. Uh, you can see this in trees. If you look at trees, where they have branches that come off them. The tree grows. It creates a structure that supports other smaller structures. And everything is off. Uh, you can see this in how you can see this in, in the flow of traffic. How traffic naturally will organize itself. You know, people will stop and start whatever, but they'll go around objects. They'll make you know turns, and the flow of traffic you know for any city really, and the flow of roads will follow a you know essentially a constructive law design. So the, the book's called Design in Nature, and it, it's a way I guess you could say of understanding essentially much of the natural world around you. Um, it, it does, I think, have carryover to understanding biology and personal training, but you, know, you have to sort of be able to converge fields a bit. But Design in Nature by Adrian Bejan, and it's, it's not a long book. It is a heavy read, but it's not a long book. But that will, uh, now I think if someone wanted to tackle that, that would sort of open their eyes, so to speak, to a lot of the, uh, like I said, a lot of the convergence of what they do with training and what they do with health and what they do with everything else and how interrelated life is that way. How do you spell the website that you mentioned, Coursera? Oh, Coursera? Yeah, it's uh, C-O-U-R-S, Coursera, R-S-E-R-A. Okay. And are you lecturing anytime soon? Uh, or is there the possibility that you could come down to Australia with John next? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not lecturing anytime soon in the U.S. because we're in a sort of a building stage with a, you know, the gym, the business right now. Um, you know, there is a possibility I could come down to Australia with John. We, he did have an Australian tour last year that was pretty successful. So, I mean, yeah, that's something that, you know, if there was, you know, I guess you'd say sufficient interest, um, you know, and I, and I was available, like definitely I could uh, make the trip. Now, I, I do have some things, you know, in the preliminary pipeline for 2017 where I'll maybe going overseas to uh, go teach. You know, I mean, that's something that I, I just, yeah, I, I had, I had outreach from some clients, you know, sort of friends in Europe. Um, they expressed that to me. So it looks like that'll be probably 2017, probably you won't know, be this year. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, like education wise, like, I'm always trying to educate as many people as possible. Like, you know, I have very full days and, you know, I love what I do. So, you know, the more people I can reach, the better. Lastly, you're a big fan of learning from your mistakes. What would you say is the biggest mistake you've learned from? Uh, <laughs> um, the biggest mistake. Oh, what, what has been, a, I guess to say, what's been a recent big mistake? There have been a lot of mistakes. Uh, and if you're not making mistakes, yeah, I, I would say challenging just, yourself. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, there's just like there's just a lot of mistakes. I, I I would say this: the biggest generalistic mistake I have made with just just life in general. Um, since God knows I've, I've, I've fucked up royally at times. <laughs> um, thinking that you got something figured out, and you don't. Um, I know, and that's like, that's oh, a mistake, yeah. It, this, hubris will absolutely unmake times in the idea that, you know, you the, the idea that you understand something as good as it could possibly be understood, you know, whether it be a relationship, whether it be finance, whether it be, you know, your business, whether it be, whether it be training, 
they, oh yeah, I've, I've got this down, or I got it figured out, or I know what I'm doing. You, you know, you, you know what you're doing until you don't. And as soon as you encounter a situation that takes you out of your sort of narrow range of experience, um, you can run into a lot of problems because then you start making decisions based on reactivity and what you've done in the past. And if you're in something that you've not encountered before, which as you go through life, technically every day is a new encounter for you, you'll have fuck ups. Um, you know, I, I mean, I could have a whole podcast about this, the mistakes I've made with a whole bunch of things. Maybe we'll make um, one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've done well. Say what? Maybe we'll make one. We'll say yeah, no, we absolutely. I mean, I'd be happy to. I mean, like, I mean, this, so, I mean, this relative to training, like, oh, Jesus. I mean, I could tell you this, so, so many stupid things I've done with people over the years where, you know, like, I mean, now I feel pretty confident with what I do. Yeah, it's always improving. Yeah, those first few years of training, like, holy shit. Um, yeah, I was, I was terrible. You know, even stuff with business that, like, I've just like, made this major mistakes and, or, or just thinking traps. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to talk about my, my personal relationships, you know, in a public forum, but yeah, personal relationships, you know, you know, past things with, you know, ex-girlfriends where I was like, okay, like that was, you know, not the, not the wrong thing, wasn't the right thing. It sure as hell didn't work how I thought it would. Um, and again, it just comes down to that thing where you don't know until you know, you know, and the presumption of, you know, of arrogance where I've got this figured out or I know what the fuck I'm doing. No, you don't. You know, ever, you know, and even if you've been alive a long time, you know, let's say you're 70 years old, there's always something new that can happen to you. There's always something new. There's always a difference of experience that can occur, and then that's at the critical juncture where you either, you know, will fall to the level of training, you know, or you'll rise, you know, to the level of your competency or incompetency, and maybe you'll figure it out and you'll progress, or maybe you'll have a crash and burn where. You ground yourself in place, and it's like you got knocked down. You're gonna have to get back up, you know. And that's never a pleasant experience at all. But it happens. It happens, and you have to be prepared for that. And making mistakes isn't always a bad thing, because let's be honest, you always learn something from the, those mistakes. And if you don't, then yeah, I, you got to. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not like it's bad at all. Make mistakes. I mean, yeah. The reality is that most of your critical junctures in life with what you really learn and your values and your realizations, they will come at your points where you probably performed or failed the worst. So, I mean, you have to, you know, like you have to get, you know, the way like a, my, my buddy Ray Cash says, he's a, he's a Navy SEAL, um, you know, very high performing guy, but you have to eat that shit up. You know, if it happens to you, you have to, you truly do have to view it as an opportunity to, okay, you know, I screwed up. You know, whether, you know, whatever the situation may be. So I have a maximal opportunity to learn a whole lot right now. You know, otherwise, if you don't take that approach, I mean, it's just, you, you view everything in the context of, you know, how bad it was, you're going to develop one of those attitudes where it's not about, you know, the life you created, it's about how life has happened to you and what was done to you. You know, and, and that can become toxic very quickly. Thank you again, Alexander, for taking the time out to chat with us today. I know you mentioned before uh, a couple of your... Hey there. Yeah. Thanks again, Alexander, for taking the time out today. How can our listeners stay up to date with your knowledge bombs? I know you mentioned before, but I just wanted to make sure that they don't miss out in terms of like your website, yeah, Facebook... Um... Oh yeah, um, yeah. The best way um, anyone's free to 
friend request me, you know, send me a message if you send a friend request. You know, just, just hey, I heard you. But you know, Facebook, you know, excellent way. And then uh, my my website, it's just it's my full name, like I said, Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez dot com. And that, um, you know, I, I email everybody, you know, on the you know, the, the mailing list, you know, at least you know twice, three, four times a week, and I post there pretty much daily. And you know, I always welcome you know any kind of conversation that through through email at all, you know, through or, you know, through messaging. That that would be the best place to get in touch with me. Um, you know, if Facebook messaging is great, but I don't spend a lot of time on the feed itself necessarily anymore. It's because my working days are just pretty long. So, but I, I mean, I can guarantee everybody that you know, after trainings every day, I'll always get in touch and reply back with uh, any correspondence. So, you know, do, do not hesitate at all that way. Thank you very much, Alex. Look forward to talking to you in the future. Likewise, Reese. Likewise, I really appreciate the opportunity for uh, having me on and let me uh, go off on a tangent. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, we loved it. What an awesome podcast that was with Alexander and Reese. Really great info and insight into his career of coaching and how to how to put together dance and training. And you think you know sometimes dance doesn't go along with powerlifting and bodybuilding, but. With speaking to Alexander, you see how perfectly it fits and from a dance background, how actually that's an advantage. So really love the podcast. Love to know what you guys think. Uh, Please leave us a review on iTunes. That's always super appreciated. Boost us up in the rankings and let your friends know where to get the good information from. Uh, Also, if you have any questions for us, maybe suggestions for future guests or want to know about our personal training packages, want to do a consult with myself or Reese or one of our staff members or want to do personal training with his Enterprise or want to come to one of our awesome courses, email info at enterprisefitness.com.au. Yes, we have a hotline. The number is 1-300-887-143. Caveat on the hotline is our phone literally rings off the hook. So a lot of the time people are like, well, it's engaged. Yes, we know that. Um, it's not a huge amount we can do about it at this stage. So preferably if you do have any inquiries, do hit us up on email or likewise go into our Facebook page and shoot us a message. But yeah, the info at enterprisefitness.com.au is the best place to get in contact with us. So until the next show, Train hard, supplement smart, and eat well.